I see on our program that, uh, that the children are being dismissed. That's good because this message is only for mature audiences. Or, or should I say maturing audiences. There we go. Maturing. Now, now everybody can, can be here. Well, I'm glad to be here with you all this morning, sort of. Uh, really don't want to be here, and I'll explain that in a little bit, but I'm thankful that God has uh, allowed us to be here, and that's, that's really a joke. I am glad to be here, uh, even though it was impolite to say I'm not, but let's go on. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me and my wife, Laura, uh, we met when we were students at UC in the 1970s, and uh, we... Uh, met each other, and eventually in 1978, we were married on this very spot, um, and that was wonderful. Yeah. In 1985, uh, Laura and I went to the Middle East to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus among people who have no real practical chance to hear about him. And just last month, we celebrated our 30th year of living overseas. Now, when Drew and I talked about um, me speaking here at the church, uh, he asked me what we would speak on and so on. And I, uh, I said, well, Drew, I have a principle. I only speak on topics that I actually practice in my life. And he said, well, John, I'd like you to speak on maturity anyway. So thankfully he gave me a few weeks to really catch up and get mature so I could share about that this morning. But I'm really glad that it's actually maturing and not mature is our topic. It's the fourth in our series of Brave Church, Multiplying, Missional, Multicultural, and Today, Maturing. In the past couple of months in this series, you've heard a lot about the Apostle Peter And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do a talk on maturing, I'd like to see what Peter has to say about that. And so our text this morning is what Peter wrote to the brave, maturing churches of the first century who were undergoing lots of persecution. And he said, "I, I don't mind reminding you of these things because I want you to remember these after I leave. So I'd like for you to stand up with me and read with me these verses from first sorry second peter 1 3 to 9 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with perseverance, and perseverance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Thank you. You can be seated. So what's a brave, maturing church? Well, I believe a brave, maturing church is a collection of individual Christians who are committed to become effective and fruitful for Christ together. Now, let me say a couple of things about spiritual maturity before we look at Peter's description of it. First, I want you to know that age does not equal maturity. And youth does not necessarily mean immaturity. Secondly, each one of us is different. God made us differently. We've come to Christ in different ways at different times, and we grow in Christ. We mature at different rates. That said, if you're a new Christian, it's fine for you to feed on milk. Maybe you don't understand all of Christianity, all of the Bible, but you can learn by milk. You can grow by the essential teachings of our faith. But as time goes on, you need to learn to eat solid food. And if you've been in Christ, you've been a Christian a long time, you should be at the place where you, in fact, are having solid food. In fact, feeding yourself and feeding others. We all grow at different rates. And then I'd like for you to think, when you think of maturity, that don't confuse immaturity or lack of growth in Christ with rebellion. Don't think of that in yourself or of other people. Sometimes, yes, we sin because we're rebellious. Sometimes we don't do what Jesus wants us to do just because we don't have the capacity to do it yet. We're not mature. You don't expect a baby to run a a marathon, do you? No, he's got to mature and grow. So as you look at your own growth and you look at other people, don't confuse rebellion with immaturity. Now, we're going to look at these factors or elements of maturity that Peter has laid out for us. And after each one, I'm going to ask you some questions to reflect on your own life as an individual and your life as a body of Christ here at College Hill Presbyterian Church. Well, let's look at faith first. What does Peter mean by faith? Well, it's not some vague, oh, just believing in some force out there, or God this or God that. He's very specific. It's biblical faith. It's what Peter died for, and it's basically this. It's our trust in God who is all good, all love, all powerful, all sovereign. And more specifically on that is that the faith that we add these elements to is the faith that we only can believe in Jesus to save us from our sins. It's his death and resurrection who cleanse us from our sins. And this is the foundation. This faith is what we build these elements of maturity on top of. You have to be very solid in that faith before you can mature in Christ. Now... Let's look at these seven supplements that Peter says that we add to faith. And you can think of it supplements in terms of vitamins that add to your food. That's fine. So 
as we look at this, I think Peter thought, I'm going to make a little progression here. These things build on each other. But it's not that, oh, you have to be totally competent in one of these, totally mature in one of these before you can go on to the next one. You can multitask in your maturing. Well, what's the first one that he adds? It's virtue. Now, virtue is an old-sounding word for what we would call today moral excellence, or you could call it good character. How would you describe a virtuous person? What's a person with good moral character? How would you describe them? Well, I think it's a person who is honest, who's upright, dependable. You can trust their word. You can trust them with your money. They'll be sexually pure. They'll have integrity. Their walk matches their talk. They have such good character that you might say to your child, well, follow his example. And they'll have a good reputation. That's what I think is a virtuous person. Some years ago, I met a man named Abraham. He was in his mid-30s. He was a school teacher and had a wife and two kids. And he was raised in a small town that was 100% Muslim. Well... In his 20s, he had decided, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. So he decided, I'm going to be an atheist. I'm going to be a, a political leftist. Well, his dad was a very conservative Muslim man, and he went ballistic. Because his son, becoming an atheist, who was a Muslim, shamed his father in the presence of all of his friends. Well, a few years after that, Ibrahim decided, well, I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, his father had a reaction to that as well. His father said, I can't believe this. First you were an atheist, now you're a Christian. You've gone from bad to worse. If only you'd stayed an atheist, my son, Ibrahim. Well, one day, it was a Friday noon, which is sort of the equivalent of Sunday 11 o'clock in that country. Ibrahim was walking down the street and... His father and some of his friends were coming the other direction. His father and his friends were going toward the mosque because Friday noon is the weekly prayer time, the weekly worship time at the mosque. So Ibrahim's coming this way. His father and friends are coming this way, and they meet on the street. His father couldn't handle this embarrassment anymore because his friends are there. They're going to the mosque. His son's walking the opposite direction. So he says, son, now he's 30-some years old. He says, son, you are going to turn around and go to the mosque with us. Now, what did Ibrahim say? He said, yes, Father, I will go to the mosque with you. And his father's eyes got really big. He couldn't believe it. He was in shock. Really? He's answering that way? And Ibrahim said, but I have one condition, Father. I'll go to the mosque with you if you can show me a prayer leader in that mosque or any other mosque in this city but for By the way, if you could show me a prayer leader who has a better reputation for being an honest man than I do, I will go and do prayers with you. His father fell silent and he let Ibrahim walk on. That is adding virtue to your faith. It sounds a lot like another verse that Peter wrote about virtue, isn't it? 1 Peter 3.16, have such a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
Of all people, we as Christians need to be virtuous, especially as we witness for Christ in such a critical and skeptical society like we live in today. So, my first question, what can you do as an individual person here? And what can you do as a church to become more virtuous, to supplement your faith with virtue? Well, next Peter says to add knowledge to to our virtue. Now, I know that College Hill here wants to be a brave, maturing church, and I know you want to keep doing every effort you can to increase your depth and breadth of your knowledge about biblical faith. And this series is, is a really good example of that. And I just love how you've got such a variety of foundational hour courses throughout the year. But I want to exhort you to increase that as individuals and as a church. Don't let it stop so you can become more fruitful and more effective, as Peter reminds us. Another reason is this, that colleagues of mine, and and I've noticed this too, that we have new recruits that come as ambassadors for Jesus overseas, and there's a generation that doesn't seem to be as biblically literate as other generations. So I want to task you to go deeper, go for it, keep training, keep getting new knowledge, adding knowledge to your virtue here at College Hill. So, what are some ways, new ways, that you as an individual or you as a church can actually add more knowledge about our faith to your virtue? Well, Peter then says, add self-control. Supplement your knowledge with self-control. Now, there's a human and a spiritual element to self-control. On the one hand, Paul says that self-control is, is a fruit of the Spirit. So if you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to be more and more self-controlled because the Holy Spirit's working inside you. But there's a human element too, isn't there? Because one part of self-control comes from you making a conscious decision to make your body submit to your will and not vice versa. I became a Christian when I was 17. It was just a few months before I started my first quarter back then at uh, UC. I was immature. I think you teenagers here in the group know what I'm talking about. I needed to learn self-control over my ungodly desires and habits. So I remember sitting in my dorm room down in Calhoun Hall on the UC campus. I can't believe it's still there. It was old when I was there. I remember sitting in my room there praying, Lord, fill me with your spirit so I can have the fruit of the spirit of self-control. But I also memorized a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I, having preached to others, might not be disqualified. In this version, it says, I, I discipline my body. Actually, the version I read, an older one, said, I buffet my body. I beat my body to make it my slave. Not the other way around. So that I, having preached to others, might not be disqualified. That's the human element of self-control. Well, of course, I'm still maturing. I'm not mature fully yet. I haven't arrived. And I still have to increase my own self-control, both by walking in the Spirit... And several times a week, I continue to remind myself, buffet your body, beat it, 
make it your slave, not vice versa. So what areas in your life might you be a slave to your body instead of the other way around? What can you do to increase your self-control? Well, next Peter says, supplement your self-control with perseverance. Another word for perseverance is steadfastness or endurance. Now, the Apostle James only wrote one letter, and I think it's very significant that in the second verse of his whole letter, he says, Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That means maturity. Rejoice when you encounter various trials, because that will produce steadfastness in you, which produces maturity. So you're going to face hurricanes in your life, individually and as a church. Perseverance means that when the gale force winds subside and when the water recedes, you're going to still be there, unmoved, unbroken. Maybe some parts of your life have been blown away or floated away with the sea. Maybe you've got some scratches. Maybe you feel a little waterlogged. But perseverance means you're not going to be knocked down. So my question is this. As a brave, maturing church, how will you persevere when society and the Supreme Court challenge your values? How are you going to remain steadfast? How are you going to stand firm? when you face persecution and suffering. Now, you may know that the main reason I'm up here today and why I really didn't want to be here, sort of, is because Laura and I are going through a trial that's really testing our perseverance. Since 2011, we've actually been living in England, and we plan to live there another 10 or 12 years. But last October... I want to make this clear, through no fault of our own, our visas were revoked. We were forced to quickly liquidate our house to say tearful goodbyes to friends and co-workers, and we had to leave the country. We bought one-way tickets back here to the States with no plan B. We arrived here mentally, emotionally, and physically depleted. Five days after we arrived, Laura's father died unexpectedly. And for seven months, we've been waiting for the Lord to show us what country to move to next. Now, Laura and I are people of action. We don't like to wait. For waiting, for us, has been a trial. It's been a test of our perseverance and our steadfastness. But we are learning that God is as concerned with how we mature in our waiting as much as showing us where he wants to live. Now, we've actually just begun the application process to move to Spain. And uh, just the application process is also testing our perseverance. It's an amazing amount of paperwork to move to another country. So, how about you? What areas of your life as an individual or as a church, where do you need increased perseverance? Remember... Peter's saying, increase, constantly increase these traits, these elements of maturity. What can you do to grow in your steadfastness in the storms you face in your life? Okay, next Peter says, 
to supplement your perseverance with godliness. You know, godliness. Godliness means reverence towards God, of course. It means reverence towards God, a respect for God that we're going to show in our words and our actions. And a brave, maturing church obviously is going to increase in reverent worship and prayer and Bible study and spiritual disciplines. In fact, that's what makes us a church, doesn't it? These godly activities, these religious activities. That's what makes us different than some charity or just some service organization. We, We have God in this. But being religious isn't the same thing as being godly, is it? You know lots of people who appear religious. You see them in the news all the time. But they're sexually impure They're unethical with their finances. They're racial bigots. They mistreat their families. Or they just simply can't control their temper. They're religious, but not godly. And a brave, maturing church is godly, not just religious. And I think, actually, a brave, maturing church will make the word hypocrite go out of use. They'll take it out of the dictionary because no one will be able to say to that church, they're hypocrites. So what can you as an individual and what can you as a church do to increase your godliness? Next, Peter says to supplement your godliness with mutual affection. Now, the Greek word he uses here is Philadelphia, which can be translated as love among siblings or brotherly love or mutual affection. That's why the nickname for the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is the city of brotherly love. That's what it means, except during baseball season. (laughs) Now, this mutual affection is what makes you have a special bond with people who are in the same phase of life. Your students, you go to the same school, you uh, follow the same football team, you wear the same clothes, you shop in the same place. We all have bonds here. I think I'm really bonded with people who like Grater's ice cream. I mean, it's just, we're in there. We have mutual affection. This is the kind of thing that turns a group of soldiers who didn't even know each other into a band of brothers. That's mutual affection. But for us Christians, this bond of unity that we have in Christ goes deeper than the bond of living on the same street or living in the same city or even being of the same nationality. And it's this bond is why Drew led you in prayers last week for the church in South Carolina where nine brothers and sisters who you didn't even know existed were murdered. You prayed for them. And that's why you pray for persecuted Christians in the Middle East and in North Korea and in Africa. But let's bring it closer to home. Now, I'm going to assume that you want to be a brave, maturing Christian individual in this brave, maturing Christian community, this spiritual family that we call CHPC. What would your increasing your mutual affection for the people you're sitting with here today look like? And I'm talking about going beyond passing the peace. Now, I'm told that in a normal voluntary organization like a church, 20% of the members do 80% of the work. Now, if you're in that 
Peter would say to you, increase your brotherly love and start serving the rest of the body here. And if you need some ideas, just find one of those very busy persons in that 20% and ask them, what can I do? Or you can actually look in the Bible and just do a search for the term one another or each other. There you're going to find more than 20 things that you can do right now to serve your brothers and sisters here and to increase your mutual affection for each other. Now, I mentioned earlier that the a church is a family that's made up of individuals who are various stages of maturity. We're growing differently. Some of us are old in Christ. Some of us are new in Christ. Well, if you are new in Christ, if you're young, if you're just maturing in the beginning and you struggle with these things like increasing your own virtue or your knowledge or your self-control or godliness, I have one word for you. Humble yourself and ask for help from somebody who's just a little bit further down the road than you. Huh. If you are one of the more mature ones among us, I say, of advanced maturity, find a younger person. Show mutual affection for them by offering to train them and to mentor them. Well, finally, Peter says to supplement your mutual affection with love. He uses the Greek word agape. It's the word for love in the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same word that you hear at many, many weddings from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is. You know the words. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy and boast and so on. But in that same passage, the Apostle Paul says, you know, even if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, even if I do miracles, if I don't have this agape love, I am nothing. Now, I find it interesting that Peter puts agape love at the top of his list of things that we supplement our faith with. And Paul seems to say, says directly, if I don't have this agape love, I'm nothing. So there's a difference between brotherly love and agape love. And I think there are two differences. One is that you give agape love to people that you don't have anything in common with. That's real love. And you also give agape love to people who you know are not going to give any love back to you. It's not mutual. It's not reciprocal. So that's the difference between mutual affection and agape love. So a maturing church is going to not only have mutual love among its members, but it's going to love outside the church. And in fact, it's going to be a multiplying, missional, and multicultural church. So why does it take bravery, then, to be a maturing church? Well, you need bravery because maturing means running a marathon. Maturing in Christ is not a hundred-yard dash. You've got to finish the race. Well, I have one last question for you. Why is it that even brave Christians, and I know we've got lots of brave, maturing, and very mature Christians here at the church, Why is it that we have to be reminded of these supplements to faith? Why does Peter have to remind us of this? Why don't we just automatically increase them every day? Well, I have a story that I think will help explain that. 
A few years ago, we had breakfast with a dear friend of ours named Don. He was 75 years old, and I asked him if he had any wisdom to share with us younger ones. He said, well, I think, John, I would take more risks. I said, what do you mean, Don? I know that you were, a past- you were a businessman. You gave up your business to become a pastor, and then you gave up your pastor so you could go fly around the world and help encourage ambassadors for Jesus in many, many countries. Seems like you've taken enough risk to me. But Don just shrugged his shoulders. He said, you know, John, I struggle every day with what I call the three C's. He says, I struggle every day with my desire to f- for physical comfort, my desire to live with the most convenience, and my desire to do all I can to control my environment. So I said to Don, with all due respect, most people would say that at your age, did I tell you he was 75? That at your age, you have earned the right to have some comfort, convenience, and control in your life. Don didn't say anything. And then I knew that I was in the presence of a brave, maturing, effective, and fruitful man who would finish his race well. The truth is, you and I don't automatically increase the seven supplements to our faith because our desire for comfort, convenience, and control hinder us from supplementing these things to our faith. In fact, I learned this morning that we are frogs. (laughs) We are frequently resisting our Father, our God. Frogs. Well, okay, I'm going to close with some homework for you. Choose one of these seven supplements that you see up there, virtue on up. Think and pray. What can you do in the next week to increase one of those? I'm not asking for all. Just one of those in your life. And in the next 24 hours, ask someone to pray for you as you seek to increase that supplement in your life. And not only just to pray for you, but next week, ask them to ask you how much progress did you have in increasing that supplement. Well, my prayer is that God will give you here at College Hill the grace you need as you battle comfort, convenience, and control, as you take the risk to increasingly become a brave, multiplying, missional, multicultural, and mature church. And like Paul wrote to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will make it complete at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen.